Yeah, we just created an environment where the, the players felt like they had some good autonomy in what they were doing and saying. And it all started back with like just good communication. And again, if we're make, we're trying to say we're going to make them the best humans we can or possible um, each day like that, we have to reflect that in our management style and how we go go through things. So it all comes down to communication and and from my level, making sure that all the players understand that I care about them as people first. So that just takes investment of time to get to know them and create those strong relationships. That was today's guest, my colleague and neighbor, Coach Mark Hubbard, head coach for the University of New Hampshire's men's soccer team. My name is Mark Bonica, and I'm an associate professor in the Department of Health Management and Policy, also at the University of New Hampshire, and you are listening to Flourishing in the World, a podcast exploring what it means to live a worthy life. In a matter of just a few years, Coach Hubbard took the UNH men's soccer team from being ranked toward the bottom of collegiate teams in the United States to consistently being ranked near the top in the country. His secret, as he tells us in the podcast, is to focus on helping his players become better humans first, then great soccer players. I hope you enjoy this podcast, and if you do, won't you leave us a rating on iTunes, Spotify, Google, or wherever you may be listening. Or better yet, share it with a friend. Thanks for listening, and here is Coach Mark Hubbard. Welcome to the podcast, Mark. Yeah, thanks for having me. So congratulations on your win last night uh, over UMass Lowell, 5-0. It's a pretty high score for a soccer game, isn't it? It was, yeah. That's awesome. uh, Felt good. 37 shots on goal, which is just absolutely insanity. So, um, yeah, we're we're rolling. We've got one regular season game left, and postseason is upon us. Yeah, and you're that – so that puts you into the American East Conference, right? Yeah, yeah. So we'll be Merrick East Conference is right after the regular season sort of ends. And then from there, depending on how things go and where your uh, your RPI is, which is the ratings percentage index, that's what ranks you in terms of getting into the NCAA tournament. So depending upon the conference tournament and then your RPI, uh, then you get the NCAA tournament, um, which follows. That's exciting. So I want to admit, um, before we keep going, um, that, uh, I have never played a team sport like in, uh, like other than like in gym class. So I've always done like individual sports, like track and wrestling. Um, so I've done some athletic stuff, but never on a team. And so I think this is really, I'm I'm really looking forward to having like a serious conversation with you about that. Can Um, I correct you on that? I think, I think I've seen you, um, wrestle your driveway with snow before. <laughs> I, think, I think that would be considered a team sport. Is that a team sport? Yeah. Me and candy out there doing that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. So we are neighbors um, yeah. right across the street and this is um, so this is fun and it's ironic because you're sitting at your house. I'm sitting at my house and we're like, you know, hundred feet apart, um, but just, just, just eat more convenient to record it this way. So anyway, I just want to put that out there for anyone listening. It's like, if I ask something that sounds completely off the wall, you feel free to correct me. And um, you know, it's just my ignorance speaking, but uh, so let's start just talking a little bit about you. So you started as the head coach of the men's soccer team at UNH in 2015. Correct. Yeah. And so did I, you, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. I, I, I was actually, uh, I grew up in the town of Durham, so that's kind of like my, my fun story. And yeah. I, 
I didn't end up going to UNH. I went to, to Colgate University, but uh, after Colgate, I played some years of semi-pro soccer or professional soccer, but lower divisions. And um, in the off seasons, uh, came back and helped out with UNH in their team. So I was eventually offered the first assistant position at UNH in like 2004, 2005. Okay. And then I was an assistant there for five years, moved to Southern New Hampshire as the head coach in 2008 for uh, seven seasons where we won the national championship um, in Manchester. But I always lived uh, locally here. We had lived in New Kittery, uh, New Market, and then had bought a house in Durham. Uh, ironically, um, a year or two before I moved back to UNH in 2015 as the head coach. So it was almost like uh, meant to be. And you know, obviously, as you know, just a quick walk through the woods to work. Which yeah. Is- been convenient since our suburban has been in the shop for over three months so <laughs> it's awful yeah so so just for folks who are, are listening and don't know unh is in the town of durham so mark's a mark's a son of durham that's really cool that um, so this season you're not uh 10 10 1 and 4 now is that correct i think so i don't pay attention too much but <laughs> sounds about right Okay. Um, and let's just, I'm, I'm throwing out a couple of statistics here. So you won the America, now you've won the America East conference as, uh, or the team has won the America East conference, uh, since to every year since 2019. Is that right? Correct. Some form yeah. of a regular season or tournament. Yeah. But our fun fact, really the biggest one is we've, there's only six teams in division one. There's 210 plus teams in division one. So there's only six teams in the past six years that has made the NCAA tournament every year. There weren't one of them. So um, it's pretty, it's just, it's kind of a unique scenario, like being a hometown kid and bringing sort of prominence on the soccer scene to UNH. It's always been in the back of my mind, considering it's been a uh, predominantly hockey football school. Yeah. And, and like I was, uh, what I was going to say was um, you've made it to the NCAA uh, division one tournament every year since 2017 is that right is that yeah, and, and and the kind of the 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 thing that te- that makes that especially like you just made a great point uh about that but the unh team hadn't been to the ncaa prior uh s- prior to 2017 since 1994 yeah just once you know it was just a it was a play-in game so it was uh you know it was the ncaa tournament for sure but okay uh, not the no we went we went right into um in three years time getting the team into the ncaa tournament and uh hosting its first ever ncaa playoff game so in in the years since we've hosted every single year and um which is always fun then in november at, at wildcat stadium we we moved to wildcat stadium uh which is like a 30 million dollar project in 2000 and um 17. So the first two years we were playing kind of on the rec shared field Bremner where football trains and intramurals kind of plays and uh, which is just a terrible facility to play on um, with a bunch of lines on it and no stands. And in 2000, we moved, made the move to Wildcat Stadium and it was past um, is it six seasons. We've only lost three times at Wildcat Stadium. So uh, it's been, it's been good home for us. Very cool. I, so you, that's, I mean, just looking at those numbers, that's really impressive. So the team hadn't been, you said once since 1994. Now they're, now you've been every year since uh, 2017 and, and, you know, 2017, you started in 15. So that's like two, two years. 
took you two years to kind of what was the secret yeah What's the secret? well the uh we were 162 in the rpi um when i first took over the the program so there's 210 teams and we were kind of ranked down there <laughs> and we brought the team up to 52 in the first year 41 in the second year and if you're right around 35 ish during um ncaa selection then you probably get into the tournament so we were kind of like right on the cusp there for a couple of years and um really the the easy part is changing the culture and getting people to believe and, and sort of buy in um the hardest thing has been to sustain what we've been what we've been able to do but when we first got here a lot of it was just based on you know, getting people to believe and that they could do it and having confidence in themselves to be able to do it. And then of course it's some good creative scheduling and good, good recruiting to get the right, right people in place. Um, but it's just a, it's a little bit of a longer process, you know, it's just not immediate. So it's the everyday stuff that you try and instill and creating those habits and, and making everyone understand that, you know, over the course of time, if you keep, keep nicking away at it and doing those little things that they're going to, you know, they're going to add up in the end. Well, I imagine it's easy to get people to believe that you can go to the NCAA, uh, NCAA tournament. Yeah. Uh, I mean, next yeah, next I mean, year, they, next year. It's... <laughs> yeah. uh, I mean, a lot of it came down to just kind of their everyday environment and okay. what they were, what they were looking to accomplish. Like for, for us, our focus is, is always on being the best human you can be so a lot a lot of everything we do is is uh steered towards that and part of being the best human you can be is being the best soccer player you can be so you're always trying to improve your craft and trying to to work at that so um we've created an environment where you know we're, we're training our guys to be better soccer players and we're playing a brand of soccer that is very fun and attractive thing to watch because obviously if we're putting in five goals or we're we're not losing much at home or we're creating this sort of environment where people can come and watch attractive soccer where we're trying to score a lot of goals and attack and um yeah there's a little bit of risk taking involved in that but um we're always building in that in the in the training environment so um and that and that's fun so we we put enough time and effort into things we do in our life you know, we want to make sure like for something like this, that it's fun. You know, we, we, we don't want to, we don't want to spend three days, three hours a day, like doing something and not having fun doing it. So yeah. that sort of was a big part of the, the early part of the, the culture change. So, you know, I teach in the, in, in a management program. Um, and, you know, if you read the, the management literature, Nobody says that culture change is easy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so you're saying, so you're saying that like, you know, I mean, just cl- classic um, change management, it just like culture change is hard. Like that's just a kind of given you're saying, no, culture change was relatively easy. Um, and I, I like what you're talking yeah. about. So tell yeah, me, I tell think, me about that. Like, why was it yeah, easy for think, you? Like this kind of, incredible- well, yeah, I think it, it, I think it's easy when things haven't been going well for a long period of time, people okay. are, people are willing to hear a different voice and be motivated in a different way and want to do things differently and want their voices to be heard. So, um, you know, we just created an environment where the, the players felt like they had some good autonomy and what they were doing and saying. And, um, 
it all started back with like just good communication. And again, if we're make we're trying to say we're going to make them the best humans we can or possible mm-hmm. um, each day, like that, we have to reflect that in our management style and how we go go through things. So it all comes down to communication and and from my level, making sure that all the players. Uh, understand that I care about them as people first. So that just takes investment of time to get to know them and and uh, create those strong relationships. So even you know when we first got there, it was balancing, still finishing up at SNU, but I was coming in at nights and having like hour-long conversations with the players, each one, and oh. getting to know them as people and, and getting to understand how it ticks and what bothers them and how they're motivated and um, really breaking it down, not just from a soccer perspective, but like who they are as people. And then, you know, if you can build a strong relationship from the start and, you know, you, you can make them understand that you care about them as humans first, then when you're really asking them to do something difficult, they're, they're going to understand that you have their best interests at heart. So it's, yeah, there are team first decisions, but, you know, a lot of the stuff that how we operate is just based on our individual relationships and that trust that we build. So is that something that you feel is unique that you do, or is this something that's commonly done by high level, uh, high, high performing coaches? I think it's hard. I think that's hard to do. I mean, the the changing the the culture isn't hard, but doing the, doing the, the piece that I'm talking about, getting to know all your employees or, and getting to understand them on that level and then continuously trying to connect with them and, and keep them, motivated and going i think is the is the challenging thing so um yeah we all have we have that continuous feedback loop so we like we meet with them before every season we we check in during the season we have a, f- a follow-up meeting as well based on like e- like an evaluation form and things that we bring up but we use that as a framework but um the the student athletes know that they can come talk to us anytime because that's that's who we are and that's the environment we've created so it's not a a dictatorship it's a it's a it's a place where usually what the players are thinking and feeling Mm -hmm. is is how how i feel so that's i think that's the best management is is when you get that buy-in it's easy to sort of change culture and and all be steered in one direction well that's a that's a, a that's some interesting and um useful advice I think that managers could take outside of uh, perhaps outside of sport. I know, you know, so my career in the military, I think we, the military uh, um, uh, taught leaders to think the way you did. You have to get to know your people. And I've found talking to, you know, that it's really important to get to know people, understand what makes them tick. And I have found in particular, my research talking to former military service members who go out into the civilian world and this is separate from from um sport of course but but i want to draw this parallel they have found that the civilian world doesn't have that same necessarily have that same value set so it's really interesting to hear you talk about the importance of those quality of the quality of relationships that you have with your with your um team and your team members yeah yeah, and it starts within the recruiting process and getting to know their families as well. And wow. Um, so when they come here, like they're already in a good spot where they feel like their best interests are at heart, but they also 
understand that at the end of the day, I've got to make team first decisions. So when we're, we're talking about trying to win a game, um, you know, it's 90 minutes, like a lot of things can go wrong or uh, things can happen. And uh, I'm the first to admit to them that I'm not always right. So this, I think it's important too, as a leader, like when things don't go well, that you're able to open openly admit that and sort of express that to them because making making mistakes is how we learn and how we how we get better so but you got to recognize it and be accountable for those things so that goes back to just being open within the relationship and them feeling like yeah all right he's human too and he's he's like one of us and we're in this together and just reviewing your roster it reads like a meeting of the un um i mean you've got Mm -hmm. players from ireland england france italy germany canada um uh, Korea. I mean, like, I'm, I'm not, I'm probably missing some Italy. Did I say Italy? Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's like, wow. Uh, yeah. how do easily you the, easily the most diverse group on campus? It's, so. it's a, yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. I mean, um, so talking about culture, like how do you bring people from so many different cultures together to work as a team? Yeah. We, well, what we first did when we got here was, uh, I guess, quote unquote, try and protect our own backyard because I was one of those people that wanted to, um, you know, just get away. So I think when you're in a small state like this and you either feel very comfortable coming, like staying home, or you just want to get out and experience something different. So we wanted to make sure that we were recruiting the best in-state kids because it's obviously a public state institution, like wanting to make sure we have representation on the roster from in-state talent and um so i guess the answer to the question is like making sure that you have those good people that are really tied in and understand who unh is and what what it's about and what the state's about what the area is about and then making sure when the internationals come in that they're paired up with these guys so that they have a home away from home and they have that natural understanding so what's really cool as a kid from new hampshire or new england um gets this experience with living with someone or getting to know someone from across the globe and those cultures sort of immersing and how to, how to communicate and how to, how to live in a, in a different way too. So those shared experiences I think are, are really valuable to the overall student athlete experience, but from a, from a necessary survival thing, like we have to recruit, we can't just recruit New Hampshire kids and try and compete for a national championship. So, and we're not in a high high-end conference like the ACC or Pac-12, whatever it is now, um, Big Ten, Big East. We're just not from a, a school and sports perspective in have the ability to be in that those conferences. So we have to be able to go out and be creative with our recruiting and find players from all over the world um, that can come in and make a, a difference that maybe other schools aren't looking at uh, where they're hiding maybe and and then do a great job of recruiting in-state and local kids, but then finding players and people that really haven't reached their potential yet and can come in and and withstand the rigors of a competitive program and culture and get better and develop within the program. So some of our best players that have that have left here have been guys that have come in and maybe UNH was the only Division One school they were looking at, or they weren't really totally bought into Division One, or um, they were really lacking something in their game that um you know hadn't 
hadn't been presented yet. And we kind of got that out of them and were able to, to develop them. So between developing those players, getting best in state and sort of regional players, and then kind of going uh, unconventional routes internationally. Um, also a little bit of NIIA and junior college and stuff in there too. Um, those are routes that aren't always combed through by the biggest schools. So I think the landscape has changed, but um, you know, when, when I was at Southern New Hampshire, a lot of reliance on international recruiting to try and um, get players because they didn't want to go division two, the best domestic guys. So we're, you know, bringing a little bit of that um, to, to UNH and, and being able to build the most competitive roster we, we can with, as you would know at UNH, very limited resources. So yeah. Yeah. Try and, try and, and getting get, more limited. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Budgets. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, yeah. You're just rolling up your sleeves and being creative with your recruiting. And, and that's led to building these multicultural rosters. And um, we usually have seven or eight different countries represented on every roster. We always have representation from every region within the country. And then, you know, we have the, the kid who's 20 minutes away and has grown up in New Hampshire and, and right. grew up coming to games or, or understanding. I mean, or you had you have Hampton and Manchester and I saw on the roster as well. I just, you yeah. know, I get, I get a little excited when I see all these foreign countries uh, yeah. and then, and then Iowa, which is practically a foreign country, you know, but um, right. <laughs> just kidding, Iowa people. Um, but uh, well, that's really interesting. So you have a, you see yourself as having more challenges recruiting domestically because of the uh, uh, conference that you're in. Correct. Yeah. Okay. So I think, like there's like there is an RPI with individual teams. There's an RPI within conferences too. So there's 24 conferences. Every okay. conference tournament winner gets an automatic bid in CNC tournament. And because there's 48 teams, there's another 24 that get these at-large bids. A lot of it's dominated by the, the larger conferences. Um, our RPI this year has been anywhere from three to five, which is great, amazing, top three or five. But mm -hmm. on the whole, it's usually around seven, eight or nine. And um, from a domestic standpoint, if you were to have a choice to go to uh, Virginia and play on the grass, you know, or Clemson, or, you know, if you have an opportunity to do that year in a year round climate, um, you know, versus coming up to New Hampshire and, and, you know, playing on turf and dealing with the snow and, all, all those things like that's it's right. kind of an easier choice for a domestic guy but what we've been able to get by with is who we are as people as a staff and um, really investing ourselves into the, the relationship piece from a recruiting standpoint and then hoping in the end uh they'll come to us because of that versus some of those other things we can't control you sorry i have to interrupt for a sec you, yeah. you keep you use you're using um uh, the acronym RPI, and I don't know yeah, what that is. <laughs> ratings, 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 percentage index. So, and what does that mean? It's just that it's it's the it's the mathematical formula that the NCA uses to um, rank the teams based on your strength of schedule and your opponent's strength of schedule. So, as long as you win and then your opponents win, your you know your rating goes goes higher. So, and then that's what they use when they're doing the at-large selections and there's the human element of meeting and talking, but they're using lists and the, 
the math behind it, um, they can make educated decisions as to who the best teams are. Yeah. So it all comes back to that, really. Yeah, yeah. it comes down to that 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 yeah. that that number. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. you were talking about recruiting and kind of looking for uh, diamonds in, in the rough. Tell me a little bit about that. It's, it sounds like Moneyball, kind of. Uh, like, it are is, you? It, it is, is Moneyball. Yes, I am like the Belichick of <laughs> soccer. <laughs> soccer. All right. Um, How does that work? Well, I mean, you there's there's scholarship limits in the NCAA, and this is where like UNH gets really separated from the bigger schools because when you're talking about the world of name, image, and likeness, the NIL world now, which um, is really creating with collectives a big discrepancy between sort of the top top end schools versus say New Hampshire. Um, there's a lack of resources that we we can't touch there that can help get the best players, and we're not fully funded either. So there's somewhere around the range of 18 to 22 guys on um, some form of athletic money, and our roster's 30. So we really have to split it up, and when you don't have a lot and you're splitting it up, guys are on even less. And then you have to be even really more creative because at the end of it, it always comes down to what the kids are paying to go to school. And um, so we have to spend a lot of time trying to figure out what the guy is actually worth to our program and what he's worth to our program could be different to someone else and how they value, value with the, with the money. So we just take a lot of time figuring it out and understanding like, we always talk about efficient recruiting. Like we're not gonna, but guys looking at Clemson, UNC, Virginia, and us, it's a, almost a waste of time and effort. To doesn't mean we still can't talk to the kid or maybe get him up on a visit, but unless there's something super unique connecting them up here, mm-hmm. it's just a waste of time. So we like to find guys that maybe are untapped or are looking at at other programs that we feel like we can be competitive with with a lower sort of financial aid package and sort of win that battle um, without having to overspend on a player so you really don't want to with limited resources you don't want to overspend on guys because then it just really limits your overall ability to build the most deep roster possible which is important when you're playing athletic season and guys are going down or with injuries or have issues in the classroom or mental health, like all these things. So you just have to, you have to make sure you build a deep roster. And if you're missing on guys or overvaluing, overspending on them, then it's really going to impact your ability to be as successful as, as you can be. So the, the money ball piece is, is definite. Like, you know, you're definitely trying to find guys that are, have really good intangibles that just haven't reached their potential yet. And that's very important when we're, we're out there looking um, for players on the road. So, so Moneyball, the thing I remember from Moneyball, and I confess it's been a few years, but like the, the like secret, uh, thing that they discovered was like getting on base, right. Was, was, was the thing that was being overlooked by all the other teams. Can you give me a idea of like, what's the secret thing that you're looking for that like the other, the big schools aren't? Yeah. There's no uh, statistical type of analysis that you can kind of relate to to soccer um Mm -hmm. in that regard you know just because baseball is so heavy with that I think a lot of it just comes down to like maybe having a kid who's like super athletic has like really athletic 
valuable assets, but like isn't that good of a soccer player, but has the the character to want to get better at that because maybe for whatever reason he was overlooked or um, he was a multi-sport athlete or he just wasn't something early on that he was attacking, but has hasn't hit puberty and fully yet and still have room to grow in college and um, we can teach him how to be a better soccer player within our environment. So so some of those things. So I want to circle back to something you said um, a minute ago, as we started to talk about your players was um, your goal is to make them the best human that they can be. I I just, that's a fabulous thing. I don't, I don't, I was not expecting you to, I guess I should have, because I know you a little bit, but I, I, I love that you said that. So tell, tell me a bit of what does that mean? It just things it just means everything that we do comes back to being the best person you can be so like whether it's what you're doing on the field like it all has a it all comes back to your daily habits and what you're doing off the field to help put you in that position to grow so whether it's in the classroom or it's on the field or it's out in the community like we're always trying to be the like the best citizen possible the best ambassador to UNH that we can be and understanding that these guys are going to go out and be productive citizens, hopefully in the world, but they're always going to wear UNH on their, on their badge and, and what, and kind of rely back on that and what that represents. So I think it's very, very, it's easy to kind of connect that because like we have to look outside ourselves. Like UNH is bigger than the, bigger than the one one person the men's soccer team is just bigger than than one person so you have to understand that um being able to give back and to do your best in all these avenues of life if you're doing that consistently making good choices then it's going to lead to you becoming the best overall person you can be that's cool and you can always grow like you can always grow and improve so we don't we don't try and pretend to be a finished product either like you're there's always something you can work on. And so and you're help, helping them yeah. seek that as. Yeah. And we also reckon, let it have them recognize that there's plenty of time in the day to do those things. Like even though you're a college student, doesn't mean you can't be uh, really good socially, really good athletically, really good academically. Like that doesn't mean socially you're, you're out like to late hours in the night, trying to be the best you can be in that environment. But <laughs> when you're out in the real world, like you, you have choices and, um, you know, you can be doing anything. Like I always bring my guys in for a run and jog in college woods because in the in, early in the year, because like 95% of them have no idea it exists. Like, Oh, you can separate from college and this, these structures and be in the woods and be in silence with your own thoughts and have peaceful moments to think about things. Like it's, it's almost like a concept they're not aware of. So just something as simple as that, like giving them tools to, understand that there's things out there that they can utilize in their free time that can help help them grow and become better. So how do you, uh, this is something I was thinking about, you know, it's one thing to build a team. Like if you were a business, you know, building a team um, and you could have your team, if you will, together for 10 or 20 years, but by design, you're losing a quarter of your team every year as they graduate or, or thereabouts. Yeah. It's been at least a third the last a few third. years. Okay. Just because of COVID. Yeah. COVID's giving, giving guys extra years. So it's, 
we're getting more and more one-year players. Um, so it's been a lot of turnover this last year. We had 18 new players come in. So, like, I think this has been the most stressful, but also one of the most rewarding seasons I've had because 18 new players, there's 33 on the roster. So it's more than 50% of your roster's new. There's 11 guys that start on the field. Uh, eight are consistently new players from last year's team. So it's almost like a brand new team and we're in a good position, I think because of our, our leadership and our, in our culture and identity, like, um, we might not be as talented as we were at the beginning of last year, this year, but we've like this, this team is like continuing to build and, and get better um, because there's so many new players just trying to get on the same page with each other. So re reintegrating who we are and our culture and what we're about and what our, where our goals are every single year is, is a very valuable um task and something that we always hit on so just something as simple as our locker room our locker room is our safe space it's something we always can try to continue to improve we've got a bunch of sayings in our locker room on 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 the wall that are um for designed in like little messages like uh ones leave leave the jersey in a better place oh nice uh, so like you you know, you're trying to bring it in and, you know, it's not just, you're just not number 10 or whatever. Like you, there's someone who is 10 before you, there's going to be someone who's 10 after you and you have to do your best to try and leave it in a better place than when you found it. It's that continuous trying to improve in, in whatever ways you can control. And there's uh, better players, better humans make better players. So just these, these little things that you might not look at it, every single day, but it, it's something that you can see and it just sort of seeps into the back of your mind. So just little things like that can help continue the culture year after year. So you don't have to fully start from scratch, but making sure that the guys who are carried over from previous years become leaders and, and carriers of that message. And they're the best teachers and, and models for the, for the new guys that come in. So you've made a point about talking about helping your helping your players become not just the best players they can be, not just the best team they can be, but the best humans they can be. So I wanted to ask you about, you know, more broadly, about athlete identity and kind of what does that mean. So, like, so I would share. I I did some research with Northeast Passage, which is a which you're familiar with, I'm sure, is an organization, but for listeners who are not, it's an organization that works with people with with uh, disabilities and help. They had run a lot of, for example, a, a big part of the organization is running adaptive sports. So they have wheelchair basketball, uh, power soccer, which is sort of a wheelchair soccer. And I did some work. We did some work, uh, a team. I, I was on a team that did some work uh, looking at athletic identity and the importance of of adaptive sports for these kids and the, and what Northeast passage did to help them build an athlete identity. And it was important to them and their identity and helping them kind of thrive and flourish. You obviously are working with young men who are at the top of, of physical fitness. And how does the athlete identity help them become better humans? Yeah, well, I mean, it's interesting you bring up the power soccer thing. One of the first things I did when I got here was adopt Lucas Courier. So he's, if you look on our roster, he's he's a 
bottom. So, so just like someone who, um, you know, has the same, same mind and, and same passion for the sport, but, um, because of, uh, Duchesne muscular dystrophy can't, you know, uh, can't perform like our guys on the field, but that doesn't mean he's any different, uh, of the importance of a, of a team member for us. Um, and I think the, it goes, goes either way. Like we've, um, we rely just as much on Lucas as Lucas relies on us for, for, you know, the relationship. And I think, um, there's nothing more powerful than having Lucas there with us in the games. Who's an amazing power soccer, uh, player. Cause we've seen it. And we've also played against them and gotten oh, our, okay. our, our, our butts kicked every single time. <laughs> um, just it, th those things are extremely hard to, to manage and move around on are very, very sensitive. So it, it really is a skill. Um, sure. um, and Lucas is, is extremely talented. That team always is, goes to nationals and has improved over time too. And, um, you know, when it comes down to identity or becoming the best humans that you can be, like you have to recognize like outside of yourself, like there's people out there that aren't as lucky or, uh, to, to have the same opportunities as you. So being grateful and humble for, for what you do have and not, being complacent or getting to a place where you think like, you know, it all or have it all is, is uh, an important lesson for, for our guys. And, you know, we're constantly reminded of that by Lucas. Like we've created an award for the Lucas Curry award. It's something that it's, uh, it, we, we name it after sort of a point structure that we do in the, the off season in the spring um, where we just pull from different areas could be your GPA could be something, um, daily in the training environment award points to it could be something in the weight room, but it sort of culminates our spring and our year when we hand out the Lucas Curry it's become like the most important award that guys sort of fight for. Um, and just in that you're, you're reminded that, Hey, I'm pretty lucky to be doing what I'm doing. Like Lucas is facing something way greater than, than what we ever be able to imagine. And, um, you know, being able to rely on that, to sort of bring our guys back to earth and let them realize that, oh yeah, it's outside of becoming a best soccer player, or trying to win soccer games here at UNH. Like there's maybe something I can take here that I can apply to my life that will help make the world a, a better place and help me think of um, people like Lucas on a, on a daily basis. So. So what is, what are the values that you try to capture when you give that award away? Um, good question. Um, I mean, I think the, the values are like, it's just re recognizing that you, that it's, it's just not about, it's just not about you. Like it's, it's about, um, it's about others. It's about sort of giving back, um, we always try and harp on this relationship with Northeast Passage. And I always, I always guiltingly feel that's even a word guiltingly, but I, I just feel like we don't even do enough. We don't even do enough, you know, for, um, we always can do more for others. And that, that seeps into sort of some of the community service things. We always try and like diversify what we do in the community, but we like, we have a piece of highway like road that we pick up once a semester. Um, 
locally in Durham. So our guys get a little dirty doing that. We get into the local schools and, and read to kids. Um, we've helped with like adoption programs through local news stations before as well. Um, and we try our best to go over and support Northeast Passage when we, when we can, but we still don't, don't do that enough, I feel like. Um, but the award just really embodies someone who has such a passion for, for the sport or for life and doesn't come up with excuses for anything. Never hear Lucas complain. Um, always has a smile on his face and despite a really slow degenerative disease that has no cure like he it doesn't it doesn't stop his daily approach and his daily drive to to be the best so it's just it's just something that seeps into i think whoever gets this award it's usually someone it's not a surprise because the person kind of does it all and um again, is, a, is an unbelievable human. It's not someone that's just like, just the best soccer player. You know, it's someone that really does go above and beyond to get himself involved in the campus community or does a lot of youth youth coaching and programming with us and, and has that sort of connection with kids in the community or no, no surprise that the person's a good student and, and drives himself there too. So um, it is also like an extremely good teammate. So just the the competition has been has been great because people see that and then you hope it seeps into you know more guys and 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 wanting to to be like lucas and want to emulate that that's very cool well let me uh, so i know you coach at multiple levels like in the summer i know you lead a bunch of um kids clinics uh and so i'm thinking about like from a coach's perspective what's the purpose of competitive sport? Like most kids will never go beyond high school, let alone college, let alone pros. So what's the point? Well, um, yeah, just to back it up. Like I was, I was one of these kids who went to camps when I was younger at UNH was exposed to the college players, the college teams. And outside of, um, you know, I played multiple sports. I was a soccer, three sports, soccer, uh, hockey, baseball um, growing up. But um, you would kind of look back as, as to like kind of what what helped drove me to want to pursue soccer. And it's probably, um, you know, some of that connection that I had with the UNH program and, and players. So I can firsthand say how important that is to sort of my overall development as a athletic person. And when it comes down to just being a part of a team and understanding what that means and how a team works, there's just so many invaluable lessons that, that come with that, that help you down the road in other environments that you could be in potentially like a family or, you know, you're working in an organization with, a multitude of teams in different different forms because it's kind of like even with us like we, we are our own team but if you break it down we're kind of our own team within our own classes as well we could be our own team from a graduate to undergraduate perspective because we have those those sort of differences in the team we have guys that are in different majors we are also a team that works within the athletic department so there's a bunch of other teams within the athletic department, a bunch of other different areas. 
And then of course, like within the overall school, we are a small piece of a bigger team. So these, these lessons of understanding how teams work, I think just is invaluable to everyone's life and being a part of a team at, at some point is, is an important tool to, to instill in, in your children. Like what needs, what developmental needs, what, what, what developmental needs do you think sport has say in childhood, adolescence, and then the, you know, the age group you coach in particular is emerging adults. What do you, what do you feel like it? Cause you've dealt, you've, you've worked with kids at all these different ages and, and you've been through it yourself. Like, what does it give people in terms of becoming their best human uh, selves that they, they can be? Yeah. I'm going to try and, well, I'm answering that. Fine. We have this quote. I want to be able to um, have a quote on our wall that I think is very applicable to building teams um, by Henry Ford. This this quote, I think, is very valuable. Coming, It's from Henry Ford. So coming together is the beginning. Keeping together is progress. Working together is success. So every every year it's a new team. So you're trying to, it's easy to come together. Everyone has the excitement of being a part of the new team. And then you're trying to get on the same page, right? By keeping together. But when you start playing in games and roles start to become more defined, um, there's some bounce back there from some individuals because they don't want to accept their role that they're given. So that create some turmoil within the team because there's players who are playing and on the field, but then there's players that aren't playing and there's a lot of emotions that are involved in that. So um, a lot of, a lot of kickback between players and and coaching staff and a lot of discussions are had and you're trying to keep the team going. And then eventually with high achieving teams, like we've had, like eventually people accept their roles and really buy into what they're doing and um, they're working together successfully as a group. So meaning that um, they've completely dropped their ego. So if it's someone who's who's playing all the time and scoring all the goals, it doesn't, they're not coming across like they know it all or they have all the answers. They still have an, a, um, an appreciation for the defender in practice who isn't playing but is pushing them in practice every day to be sharp and be their best. Um, and everyone's sort of recognizing their, the, the strengths that everyone sort of brings to the team environment. And there's, I mean, there's so many layers to that, but um, understand your roles and responsibilities within the team is, is a really, is a really cha- hard challenge because you can, you know, only one person can be the CEO or it can be the, you know, like the, not everyone can be that, be that person. There has to be different layers and, and groups within the team that are sort of working together um, successfully to create the most successful team you, you can. So understanding that dynamic, I think, is really important and something that at a very early age, like even with youth teams and groups, like can be instilled in, in, in people so that they're not battling it. There's definitely a lot of like when parents are involved in these things, like, uh, you know, they can have big roles in shaping their kids and how they approach 
you know, humans responses to certain things um, like quitting or, or pointing the finger at someone else instead of looking within or taking away like the initiative of a player to sort of talk to a leadership position, a coach or, or on their own and sort of work through it rather than have the parent dictate everything. So some of, some of these, these lessons can definitely happen at, a, at an early age and can really shape someone's ability to, I think, deal with a lot of adversity down the road that maybe necessarily isn't on, on the athletic field, but in life, like being able to deal with adversity on their own and in a team environment and how to handle that can very much be attributed to youth sports. And especially in today's age, when everyone's parent thinks their kid deserves the world and thinks they're the right, best. Right. right. Of yeah. course. Yeah. I, I mean, uh, all our kids are above average, right? So, okay. <laughs> um, I like your, I, I really like your answer there because I, I think I, what I hear a lot you saying is you've got to, you know, the being part of a team, being part of an athletic team teaches you to subordinate your ego to the needs of the team, uh, to see everybody has a role, everybody adds value. Mm-hmm. Um, those are all important lessons to learn to be on a, a team. And I mean, like you said, everything, you know, we're all in a, whether it's our workplace or our family, right? We're all, I mean, that's one of the things that humans do, right? Is we, we are successful and we can work in mm-hmm. groups. I wanted to ask you, uh, ask you about your own work. So you've been a coach now for many years. I mean, when did you realize you might want to be a coach? What, what, so you had a successful career as an athlete. What was the transition point that you're like, you know, I, don't I, know. I, I think this I don't is know. maybe I was just like staying connected through sport. Like when I went to Colgate, I was like, it was a big, like socioeconomic change for my family. Um, so I was not a, a cookie cutter Colgate kid. Um, but it, it, I was hoping like I would go there. Maybe I'd be a sports medicine doctor. And uh, I took some labs like early on. I was like, there's no way I can. I can do this. Uh, but it being a small liberal arts school, it just got my hands in a lot of different things and um, some leadership things down the road, being involved in athletics, maybe was thinking um, some sort of athletic administration thing, or um, I knew I wanted to try and pursue pro soccer as a dream, or I was able to do that to some extent and work and sort of sacrifice for that. But um, in my senior year, I just had a bunch of different things I was balancing, which, you know, a lot of my uh, teammates or friends went into the financial world and um, I just wasn't, wasn't feeling it. So through soccer and just being connected through, through teams, like was lucky enough to, again, be offered that sort of position in the UNH team and sort of let me into coaching. And then when I came back to UNH, I got my graduate degree as well in, in kinesiology, sports science is what it was called at UNH at the time. So my graduate degree is from UNH and through there, I got some, some valuable experience in administration and management, uh, marketing, uh, a little bit of coaching in there too. Took some psychology classes as well. So now I was a political science major at, at Colgate, more so just because 9-11 happened and I had like an international relations, international affairs sort of emphasis in my minor was education. So 
I didn't know exactly what I was going to do with it, but I had uh, the classes were really interesting because of 9-11, everything that was that was happening. So um, I think just being around people and wanting to motivate teams and is something that just led me to coaching and obviously gave me a great opportunity to still be connected with a sport that I was so passionate about and brought me a lot of happiness. If you could kind of encapsulate your coaching philosophy in a, a sentence or two, what what would it be? Um, a lot of it is broken down just to the individual relationships that I have. So I think just sort of tying it back into how we started this conversation, like it's, it just goes into my coaching is just individually, it's individually based, but you know, there's a team emphasis or a team dynamic. There's a, there's a, there's core values and, and standards that we uphold, but um, a lot of it comes down to the the individual relationships that um, I build from from the onset. So it could be the the relationships I have with my players as as we go through the recruiting process. It could be the relationships I have with my my coaching staff who I have to recruit and maintain and help move on. It could be the relationships that I have with other coaches in the league or um, in the sport. Um, could be the relationships I have with the support staff and the athletic administration, um, the field house. So whether it be athletic training or strength and conditioning or nutrition or um, my athletic administrators, um, all those relationships sort of, I think, tie back into um, my coaching philosophy and who I've become. Where would you say that, like, who was most influential on you or what, what was it that brought you to that? realization because it seems to work pretty yeah, well I, I don't know like i get asked that a lot not like one person but i, I think you learn just leave it like with this like you kind of learn what what to do from people but you also learn what not to do so being able to pick up on those sort of shared experiences and develop your own self is it's kind of how i've evolved into the coach i've been so i'm interested in in particular you know, in my research role, I'm really interested in how people find meaning and purpose in their work. What would you say is it is about coaching that gives you a sense of meaning and purpose? Well, I just think making a difference in people's lives, like helping them become better people. So I think that's, I can always turn to that at the core and find finding meaning and value in, in what I do. So helping helping people grow as, as individuals. And there's such a malleable stage still when kids have come away from home for the first time and are on their own and um, are trying to figure out who they are. So the college setting just provides a great opportunity to really get back and, and produce good humans for the world. Let me, let me close on this question. Like how, how does, how, how should um, people, so people listening to this, coming away from our discussion today, how would you recommend they fit competitive sport or athleticism into their lives? I mean, being active is important. Like part of my job is like going out into the field and teaching soccer and kicking the soccer ball around, being on my feet, being outdoors. So um, a lot of intangibles there in terms of um, living a healthy, flourishing life. I think doing something that you're passionate about 
that challenges you, makes you think in a different way. Like this job is always continuously evolving, whether it's I'm recruiting, I'm preparing for games, I'm interacting with a lot of different people around campus. I'm trying to build a brand. I'm trying to build a stadium. You're trying to make something um, bigger than itself. Like there's always something that's continually challenging me to, uh, to be better. But in terms of bringing it back to like, I guess the team framework, like just understanding how to operate with other people and work with others and interact with others, motivate others and pull from, from others is, is really the biggest thing that you can get from, from being a part of a team. And I think, um, yeah, I don't, I don't have a golden, golden answer to that, but I, I think being a part of, uh, I might have to like, it sounds like a book report professor that I should be really breaking <laughs> down and reading on this, but being active and being a part of a team and it's just something that, yeah, you just, it's always evolving. The team is there. I'm always meeting new people. I'm always helping people move on to the world. Like you're meeting people from different cultures, different, different environments that it just comes in and, and it's like a, it's like a factory of, of information and, and feedback that is exciting and fuels my, fuels my every day. But I'm a family guy. We even get, get, get into that. And I'm a hu husband and dad first. So, you know, maybe, maybe brings it back into me being a better person in those areas too. And, and vice versa, like me keeping those things at the core of who I am, maybe helps me become a better leader and a better coach in my job too. Mark, thanks so much for your time today. I appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Flourishing in the World. We hope you enjoyed this podcast, and if you did, won't you share it with a friend and leave us a rating wherever you might be listening. Until next time, this is Mark Bonica, willing good for all of you.